0: You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime, in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 3.19. Wish you well, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and... I'm glad that we recorded almost all of this episode before right-wing insurgents sacked the Capitol building.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and feeling a bit guilty that I spent most of this episode annoyed at Cecilia. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 418 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Charles S., Stephen Hill, William L., Pizza King, Matthew M., and Harley R. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And some special thanks to Taliarchus and Studio Ozkai for the holiday cards you sent us. We really enjoyed them.
1: This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 21, Crybaby Cecilia, or Nakimushi Sashiria. Part 2. For research this week, I'm going to be talking about the Japanese emigrant experience and what it might tell us about Cecilia's family and what lies in store for them.
0: But first, let's tune our receivers to Radio Free Shangri La.
2: And now, the award winning new adventures of Detective James Stryker. Now, sponsored by the Granada Tourism Bureau. Plan your next vacation in Granada and enjoy our famous old world style lunar hospitality.
3: The name's Stryker. I was a dead end private detective on Shangri La Colony until she walked into my office with a case I couldn't refuse. I followed the breadcrumbs all the way to the Argama, but the client cut me loose when I got too close to the truth. I got off colony thanks to an Axis captain who wanted me to dig up information about his rival, but he didn't even give me a name, just called her Boobzilla and said I'd recognize her by her lack of respect for Lady Haman, whatever that means... Pretty soon, the rose-scented envelopes full of money stopped coming. So now, I'm stuck in Granada working odd jobs to make ends meet, while I try to unmask the masterminds behind the AUG and figure out what the organization's goals really- Hey,
4: yeah, hey, hey, Jimmy! We need you out here! Stop that neo-noirish monologuing and grab a mop! Cecilia, drop another one of our famous moonfacer pizza pie on the floor by the cash register.
3: Yes, sir, Mr. Galbaldi, sir. I'll get right on it.
4: Mm, grazie, Jimmy. You're a good metagon. It's real good to have someone reliable working around here. Hey, uh, you got uh, anything going on tonight? Why don't you come on over for dinner? I know my daughter Betty would love to see you again. She's making a nice gabba
3: and some calamari. Mwah. Oh, uh thanks, Mr. Galbaldi, but I uh, I really can't. I've got my other job tonight. Oh,
4: yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, uh, yeah, maybe we'll not order some other time then. Hey, Cecilia, dozy patch a boomer. I'm begging you please to get it together. Oh those was Nano's
3: plates. I hated lying to him. Alfredo Galbaldi's a good man and a good boss but I won't let myself get distracted from what's important. And anyway, I couldn't exactly tell him that I was planning to break into a secure military spaceport tonight. Still, I wish I could do something for him to show my appreciation.
4: <laughs> ah, marron. Who'd the gabagool keep putting salt into the Visigazi soda fountain?
3: That's it. Once my shift ends, I, Detective James Stryker, will solve the case of the Salty Cola.
4: Jimmy! Get at the map!
2: Detective Stryker is on the case!
3: Step one for any new case is to get the lay of the land. I'd heard rumors about a rash of cola saltings in Granada's port district, but I had to get the details. I started by canvassing the other restaurants in the neighborhood.
0: No, no, yeah. We had our soda salted the other week. It got salted real bad, too. It was, like, totally undrinkable. They salted our Pepsi, they salted our Sprite, and they even salted our Lieutenant Pepper.
3: What about the seven side?
2: Do you think you are asking if our soda's salty? You with the health inspector?
3: No, I'm just a-
2: We don't serve pop here. We exclusively serve Wong Lee Strong Tea Brand tea-like beverage solutions. Sure.
3: Have those been salted? Okay. That's all the restaurants on Twanning Street, just two more blocks left to check. Hey buddy, I use the guy who's been asking about the sodi pop.
2: Huh? Get him boys. Sometime later, Detective Stryka wakes up in an alleyway behind Alfredo Galbaldi's Granada-style pizzeria. The thugs have turned out his pockets. His notes are gone, along with what little money he had scraped together and the keys to his apartment. Oh, my head.
3: That's got to be the third worst concussion I've ever gotten from this job. Now... Where am I?
0: Hold on.
3: Isn't that Cecilia, the waitress who can't stop crying? What's she doing taking money from a Xeon officer? Could the wave of soda saltings be an act of Zion sabotage?
2: Could it indeed? Find out next week on The New Adventures of Detective James Stryker, The Case of the Salty Cola, Part 2.
1: And now the recap for Crybaby Cecilia, Part 2.
0: We left our young Argama crew members standing in the break room, L blocking Cecilia from leaving and Judo hesitating to explain why and we return to Judo, prevaricating, but Elle cuts to the chase. She tells Torres that Cecilia has been acting as a spy, for forgotten. Bursting into tears, Cecilia insists that she didn't tell the Axis soldiers anything. She falls to the floor, clinging to Torres and begging him to let her go, but he sends the kids to find the captain and ask him what to do. Honest yet gentle, Torres tells Cecilia that she can't cry her way out of this, and she's likely to be arrested. But he'll do what he can for her. Gotten is down to a single mobile suit, though Nell and Clayu assure him that three more are on the way. A cargo ship that was damaged in the recent fighting is demanding reimbursement from them, and this gives Gotten an idea. He orders his bridge crew to buy up as many cargo ships as they can, regardless of their condition and laughs to himself thinking about his latest, brilliant idea. Back on the Argama, Bright and Rue have arrived at Chiara's cell to inform her she's being transferred to Granada's POW facility. She argues, pouts, bargains, and tries to seduce Bright to his obvious discomfort. The captain seems relieved when Judo and Elle arrive to tell him about Cecilia, providing a welcome distraction. In that same moment, a call comes in that they are under attack from Axis mobile suits. And when Torres and Cecilia appear in the doorway of the cell, Chiara takes advantage of everyone's distraction and confusion. She dashes out, bowling over Torres and taking Cecilia hostage. Dragging a tearful Cecilia along, Chiara makes it all the way to the hangar and into the cockpit of a mobile suit, where she finds a gun and threatens to shoot Cecilia if they don't open the hangar door. Despite Judo's protestations, Torres opens the hangar door, then hops in a car and takes off after the fleeing mobile suit. bi and Mondo with him. The Axis attack continues, and Goten's plan has finally become clear. The mobile suit pilots are dropping cargo ships on ports all over Granada, seeking to trap or flush out the Argama. Judo, initially intent on backing up Torres, is forced to turn back and take on the Axis mobile suit pilots. In an attempt to creep through passages in the colony, Chiara manages to get the mobile suit she's piloting completely stuck. When she abandons the mobile suit to flee on foot, it doesn't take long for Torres to catch up, shove her away from Cecilia, and knock her to the ground. But the whole time they were together, Kiara told Cecilia that if she tried to go back to Ayug, she'd be put to death as a spy. Now, Cecilia is overwhelmed with fear and runs from Torres and Kiara both. When Torres goes after her, he leaves Chiara to Chan Mondo, but she gets away, stealing a car and hiding deep in Granada. Cecilia runs to Goten. In return for her revealing the location of the Argama, he gives her the promised tickets aboard an emigration ship, along with a bonus, a briefcase full of gold bars that he warns her not to open around anyone. The ship is leaving that very afternoon, and she leaves hurriedly to collect her family and get them to the port on time. About to board the plane, she sees Torres' car pull up and goes back to talk to him, sending her family ahead. She begs him to come with her, saying that she lied about the Argama's location and has an extra ticket for him. She won't be afraid if he's with her and he won't have to fight anymore. Furious, he slaps her and she falls to the ground. He would never abandon his comrades on the Argama and her actions will still get people killed. She doesn't want to bear the burden of her family alone anymore. All Torres sees is her selfishness. He drives off, and she boards the ship to rejoin her family. The ship, overloaded and in a hurry, finds a gap in the battle outside and takes off. The Axis pilots are caught off guard by the Double Zeta's arrival. They thought they had crashed a ship into the port where the Argamo was docked. But Goten has yet another backup plan. He orders them to drive the just-emerged immigration ship over the Argamos port. On board, Cecilia's belligerent, alcoholic father berates her while her mother sits silently, and her young brother peers out a porthole at the battle. The ship is jarred, and Cecilia drops the suitcase Goten gave her. When she goes to pick it up, it opens slightly, revealing not the gold ingots that were promised, but blinking lights and a tangle of wires—a bomb. Outside, it seems that the Axis mobile suits are using the ship for cover, but Judo trusts his aim and attacks. A few moments pass, as Cecilia realizes what Gotten has done, and decides what she must do. As she puts on a normal suit and goes through an airlock to take the bomb away from the ship, she talks to herself as if she's talking to Torres. I'm not afraid, she tells him. Judo has killed Clayu and destroyed one of the other mobile suits. Goten orders the rest back to the Axis ship and begins the countdown to set off the bomb. Standing at the edge of a hatchway, Cecilia sees Nell's mobile suit fly beneath her and decides to not just jettison the bomb. She propels herself forward and clings to the mobile suit with one hand, carrying the bomb in the other. About to fire on the retreating enemy, Judo spots the tiny figure and waits calling out for them to get away. Once he gets closer, he can see that it's Cecilia, and calls out for her to let go. He'll catch her. But, Tora's words are still ringing in her ears. She can't risk the bomb harming Judo, the Double Zeta, or Granada. Goten's ship fires its guns at the Double Zeta, forcing Judo back. Nell lands on the launch deck. The bomb explodes killing Cecilia, Goten, Nell, and all the remaining Endricor. On the bridge of the Argama, Torres thinks the enemy blew themselves up and gives a relieved grin as he thinks, We got lucky. He thinks of Cecilia and hopes that she finally has some luck and finds a better life somewhere. In his cockpit, Judo holds back tears and wonders why Cecilia did it. There is so much to talk about in this episode, and basically all of it connects to Cecilia.
1: One of our listeners on Facebook told us before we started these two episodes that these were some of their absolute favorite, and they hoped that we would enjoy them as much. And I would say it's pretty safe to say that we did. Uh, We really liked these two episodes. I personally thought they were really well done. Did you?
0: I liked these a lot. I also, uh, and part of this is certainly the way that we watch But I particularly enjoy when media incites a reaction from me and then makes me question why I'm reacting that way. Mm. (laughs) And I think these episodes and the way in which Cecilia is portrayed do that for me.
1: What is the reaction that it incited and that you then found yourself examining?
0: I don't know about you, but my emotional reaction to Cecilia was very much in line with both Torres's and Chiara's reactions to her. That she's being kind of annoying and she needs to pull herself together. Like, she's making choices and then acting like, oh, boohoo, woe is me. Like, how can anybody be mad at me? My situation is so impossible.
1: Yeah, I mean, she does this a couple of times in this episode where she, like, breaks down crying to Torres specifically, right? And it's both a real emotion she's clearly feeling, but also a transparent attempt to manipulate him via her emotions.
0: And it's not just crying, right? She clings to him. She falls to the ground dramatically. Uh, It made me think of a line from 30 Rock, actually, where one of the characters has a nemesis who is a teenage girl and says about her, I don't know if she's vicious or vulnerable. And the person he's talking to says, well, she's a teenage girl. She's both. (laughs) The reason that I then question that is because... Her fear is reasonable, right? She's just one person, one untrained civilian person, living in constant terror. A lot of people in that situation learn to bury that fear or become so accustomed to it that it doesn't come out in this way, and she clearly has not and cannot. It's a constant presence for her. I also think a lot of women get shamed for showing emotion, or, quote-unquote, being emotional in a way that is harmful to both men and women because everybody should be able to show their feelings. And, like, honestly, what's more realistic? The sort of thoughtless, quote-unquote, bravery, which we could also call just sort of, like, ignorance of the danger exhibited by a bunch of other characters, or the sort of, like, paralyzing slash thrashing about terror experienced by Cecilia.
1: Well, everybody responds to those sorts of extreme stresses in different ways. Um, The classic fight or flight or freeze reaction. And none of those are more valid than any others. The problem with Cecilia, though, is that while she is in an impossible situation, and it is very understandable why she would feel the way she did and why she acted the way she did, she did do a very bad thing. She did a series of very bad things.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And she is selfish, and she's using her bad situation as an excuse for her bad actions.
0: Well, we've talked about this before with respect to Kiara, The idea that women have, have certain kinds of power or certain ways in which they can manipulate men in a society in which they are, like, marginalized or disempowered. And one of those is sex appeal, <laughs> and seduction. And we see Chiara do that. And one of those is tears. Like it's certainly a, a trope, but it is also a thing that really happens that women use tears to get out of trouble.
1: Well, not just tears. And I, I know you know this, but to be very explicit about it, it is a demonstration of uh, exaggerated vulnerability. It is the, the feminine vulnerability that motivates men to act in protective ways. That is a weapon for some women in some circumstances. This is both a a real thing, but also a trope as old as literature, as old as stories.
0: And there are times when Torres's reaction to that feels quite mature to me, uh, particularly in the the opening of the episode when he tells her, you know, you're probably going to be arrested. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, I will do what I can for you. And he does try to comfort her.
1: And this is very similar to previously when he offered her some financial help to get her off of the colony. And it's, it's not enough. He can't do everything for her, but he does offer to help, um, you know, as much as he can.
0: And I want to pick apart the idea of her selfishness, because while I agree with it, I think it's such a complicated situation and we really need to look at all the different parts of it.
1: Yeah. Which of her actions are selfish and which ones are selfless is a, a huge question. In this episode.
0: Well, and how much of it comes down to what we perceive her motivations to be, right? Because we've seen characters do all kinds of of really damaging things in the interest of saving someone who matters to them. And so if we perceive her motivation as being saving her family from Granada, the show... I mean, these kinds of shows set us up to forgive her almost anything <laughs> if what she's doing is motivated by wanting to protect her family, But right? it's
1: definitely not.
0: Well, but... Why should it be? Her father is a belligerent, good-for-nothing alcoholic. Her mother is basically silent. We get the perception she's probably completely browbeaten by the father. She's taking care of three of her parents' young children and her grandparents. Why? Sure. Why is that her responsibility? Why is it selfish of her to not want to do that?
1: It is by definition selfish of her to prefer her own happiness over taking care of all these other people. The question is, is that bad because it's selfish?
0: Right. I th- there's there's a, a gendered expectation of selflessness, especially in caregiving.
1: Uh, especially for the eldest daughter. Right. This is a well-documented phenomenon.
0: Right. Well, in this sense that until her brother is old enough for it to be his responsibility, she's sort of stuck with them. I'm sure there were tons of exceptions to this, but uh, sort of traditionally in Japanese culture, a young woman went and took care of her husband's family. She gave up a lot of the responsibility for her own family and took on responsibility for the family she marries into. And this even comes up as a theme in movies. I forget which one it is, but there's an Ozu movie about an old man and his adult daughter And he wants her to get married so that she'll have someone to look after her when he's gone. And she doesn't want to get married because getting married means she has to leave him. Like, it's, it was still a a relatively recent sort of feeling within the culture at the time that Double Zeta was made.
1: And of course, this is present in the episode, in the emotional undercurrent of the interactions between Cecilia and Torres. We get the sense that for Cecilia, Torres, like, look, she says she's in love with him. She cries when he leaves. She's clearly, like, very fixated on Torres, and she keeps thinking about him and to him at the end when she's carrying the bomb. But at the same time, she like, he's her childhood friend. She hasn't seen him in years. She met him again today. Um, So, like, She's not really in love with him, but there is a very powerful and important uh, effect that he has on her. And it's because he represents something to her. He represents possibly escape from her family. Alternatively, he represents somebody who can help her bear all of these impossible burdens.
0: He represents her not having to do it alone anymore.
1: Though I think there is also a sense that she wants to run away with him. There are times when she's talking about escape and it sounds like she wants to escape from her family as well.
0: It's a very dark moment, but even as she is about to get rid of the bomb, she thinks to herself, like, if only I could get rid of my parents.
1: Yeah. Well, and that last interaction between the two of them, when Torres tells her, your family should be enough for you. And she says, my family is a burden. is like, That's so powerful.
0: He's right about her selfishness. He's right about the fact that she's like, oh, well, I didn't hurt the Argama. And he's like, yeah, but what about all the people at the port that you caused to be targeted? Uh, And the fact that she doesn't really know him, that she wants him to abandon the Argama when Mm -hmm, he would never do mm -hmm. that. He's right about those things, but he so completely does not understand the burden that her family is for her that that feels so unfair.
1: (laughs) It makes me wonder about Torres's family. Does Torres have a family? Is Torres an orphan? Is he on the outside looking in thinking about how nice it would be to have a family? We don't know.
0: Well, or is his family situation just, you know, positive enough that he sees family as this nice, supportive community to which he belongs? And so he doesn't really understand her solitude.
1: Or is he thinking of family for him as the Argama, as Ayug, And so he sees her willingness to abandon her family. He sees her asking him to abandon his family. And that's what makes him so angry.
0: And we also have the the dramatic irony at the end of him. You know, he's not still angry with her. He was angry with her in the moment, but it passes. And he, he honestly wishes her well. He honestly hopes that her life can get better.
1: He's so relieved at the end when he sees that the Cassiopeia is safe and that presumably so is Cecilia.
0: There was one bit I was curious about. Before Nell's mobile suit flies under where Cecilia is, I thought maybe her plan was just to jettison the bomb.
1: I think that was her plan. She has a comment about hoping the ship will go faster so that she can throw it out into space.
0: Okay, but then when she sees... These people who took advantage of her and preyed on her fear, she impulsively...
1: I don't think it's a desire to destroy them, but I think she doesn't know when the bomb will go off. So she needs to act now. And the ship is not going fast enough. She can't throw it out into open space and just let it explode like that. And I do think she considers the possibility of just dropping it. But after what Torres said about, you know sacrificing those unknown, unnamed people, the strangers to her at the other port. She knows that she can't just throw the bomb at the city of Granada.
0: She does comment, though. She says, like, oh, it's them. Mm -hmm. And we see throughout this episode that her, her fear is what makes her easy to manipulate for them. Would she have run from Torres if Chiara hadn't convinced her, like, oh, they will definitely put you to death as a spy?
1: It's fear, but it's also greed, right? Like, she has that bit where she says, no, it's okay, I played this well. I got this briefcase full of money and these tickets onto the ship.
0: I don't think she ever mentions the money to Torres.
1: She doesn't, but when she's talking about having, like, having played the situation well, I think that's got to be on her mind. Mm -hmm. She's clearly mentioned the money to her family, because her dad has that, what he thinks is a joke. Oh, was there a bomb under all that money?
0: I don't know. I suppose the the feeling that I got was that having been tricked by them, she really wanted <laughs> to fight them specifically. Hmm. And also potentially knowing that they are the ones fighting Torres, uh, you know.
1: I can see how you got there. I don't think I subscribed to that newsletter.
0: All right. Well, that's fine. <laughs> um, I also found her repeated insistence in those scenes, like, I'm not afraid I'm not a crybaby. I'm I'm not weak. So heartbreaking.
1: Yeah, the whole ending from when Cecilia gets into the airlock, basically until the end of the episode, is like heart-wrenching.
0: She has made the decision that a lot of people who feel that they're in impossible situations make, right?
1: Yeah. I'm not sure at what point she realized she was going to die. I don't know at what point this became a suicide mission for her. I don't think it started out as one.
0: I, I don't think so either. It's it's difficult to pinpoint, you know, is it when she jumps off the Cassiopeia? Is it when she's clinging to Nell's mobile suit? Is it partway to Gotten's ship? I, I'm not sure exactly.
1: And I've been in situations, obviously nothing quite as tense as this, but I've been in situations that were very uh, emotionally intense, very chaotic in the moment and you sort of sometimes you just don't know what to do you can't make a plan and you just find yourself holding on to you know whatever like you panic and you grab onto a passing mobile suit and you just hold on because you can't think of anything better until the situation is over yeah one or another
0: I don't necessarily think it was planned and then by the time she's you know clinging to this other mobile suit it's like well if I let go, who's gonna get blown up with me? I can't let the double zeta catch me. Like, yeah, it it may have been sort of accidental, but it's hard to argue that like jumping out into space in a normal suit while carrying a bomb that you don't know when it's gonna explode is anything but like suicidal.
1: Sure, <laughs> I don't presume to argue that. When you view these two episodes as a coherent whole, it's interesting to note who leaves after the first episode and who joins for the second. Wong Lee is not a presence in this episode, despite being a major one in the first episode. And of course, Cecilia's father is only introduced here. And the two have some parallels. I mean, they're men of roughly the same age. They even look a little bit similar. Um, and of course, both of them are very belligerent with younger people. Both of them are very insistent about their like rights and authority as the older person, as the person in power in the hierarchical relationship, whether that's the workplace or the family. Um, and both of them are basically like taking advantage of younger people's energy. Um, to the detriment of the younger person and for their own uh, personal benefit. And that's not unique to either of them. That's something we've seen throughout all of Double Zeta. It's very much about adults taking advantage of children in multifaceted ways. I think we should also compare this episode to Zeta as a whole because I think you know this is the first time we've had meaningful characters die in a while. If it's not clear from the episode, uh, Nell and Clayu and Gotten, as well as Cecilia, all die here. And we should also compare it to what I think is the obvious parallel in First Gundam, which is the Miharu storyline. Let's start with Miharu and Cecilia. Comparing the two, which did you think was better done?
0: I don't think I can make a call. They are, I mean, aside from the fact that they're both redheaded onesan. san uh... <laughs> And they're both
1: spies who have a quasi-romantic relationship with a member of the secondary cast on the ship, and they both uh, end up dying after sort of two episodes on the ship.
0: Right, but their personalities and, to some degree, their motivations are completely different.
1: So you'd say it's, like, superficially very similar to the point where it's almost eerie, and yet, in its details, in its execution, it's very different.
0: Yes. Miharu has been a spy for longer. She's braver she's more comfortable with what she's doing she is honestly motivated by care for her two younger siblings that is a big part of why she's doing what she's doing uh the loss of their parents and so on there's an actual romantic connection between her and Kai and Kai is aware that she is risking herself when she says like I have to go make up for what I've done let me help Uh, He knows about the danger that she's in.
1: Both of them are motivated by the realization that their actions are causing real harm to real people. That is sort of the moment at which things
0: switch for them. In some ways, I find Cecilia more compelling because of the complexity of her situation, as we've said, because of, you know, how selfish is it and is that bad and... And how much she struggles, like how hard this is for her.
1: Miharu was distinctly heroic, I think, especially towards the end. Whereas there's never any sense of Cecilia being a hero. She's much more real. She's much more grounded as a character.
0: And I don't know if they're going to do anything in future episodes with regards to it. I don't know if anyone will ever mention her again. But the whole crew of the White Base knows that Miharu helped them in the end. At the end of this episode, the only person who knows what Cecilia has done is Judo. And does he tell anyone? I don't, I don't know.
1: It would almost be kinder for him not to tell Torres what happened.
0: Speaking of Judo, there are a couple moments in this episode uh, in terms of how he relates to Cecilia that I want to address. You know, he and Elle are the first ones to see her acting as a spy. And yet he doesn't want to tell on her. He doesn't want to get her into trouble. Elle is the one who's like, all right, well, if you're not going to do it. uh, You know, when he tells Bright about it, he is looking for an explanation. He is looking for a context that justifies her actions. And Bright is like, well, of course, (laughs) there's something that just like... There's
1: always a context.
0: There's always a justification. Nobody spies for no reason. But Judo so wants to cut her slack in any way... And then at the end of the episode, Judo characterizes Cecilia's self-sacrifice as selfish. Mm -hmm. You know, to him, her acting alone in a way that leads to her death, that feels selfish to him.
1: And in some ways, he's totally right. I mean, if we think of Cecilia's selfishness as opposed to her obligations to her family, in one way, she's... She is protecting her family by getting rid of this bomb, but she's also abandoning them by dying. And maybe it's not possible to get rid of the bomb without abandoning them, but we do see her um, escaping, in a sense, from Mm -hmm. these obligations.
0: You know, she's acting under incredible strain and doesn't exactly have time to think carefully about this or, or plot a strategy. But Judo makes contact with her and she doesn't say, this thing I'm holding is a bomb. I don't know when it will explode. Like... She doesn't get help. She doesn't let anyone help her. She takes it all on alone.
1: And she's so accustomed to taking things on alone. Because she doesn't feel like there's anyone who can help her.
0: Well, I mean, the last time she trusted someone, they gave her a bomb that was going to blow up her and her whole family, so.
1: God, Gotten, Just ruining everything.
0: I am legit shocked that they killed him off, though because he's such a great character?
1: He really is.
0: And has has kept up so much uh like interest in the show. I feel like he adds so much to the show.
1: He's such a good foil for the other Xeon commanders.
0: And then to to kill him off in a frankly very subtle way here. I feel like in First Gundam or Zeta, they'd have shown us a shot of like the inside of the ship as it was blowing up or something.
1: Yeah, I mean think back to how uh Dren uh who is a was Char's like second in command at the very beginning of First Gundam, and kind of is a similar role to Gotten um, in First Gundam. And Dren dies very gruesomely and very explicitly in First Gundam, and is actually shown dying a different, explicit, gruesome way in the movies.
0: Well, or or a Kieselia, or a, you know, other prominent characters get very explicit, graphic deaths in First Gundam, and so to have. Gotten die off screen in a faraway explosion feels a bit anticlimactic, given how important he's been so far.
1: Yeah. I'll also say, like Saegusa, Gotten apparently lives in the novelization, um, and I'll tell you more about that later on. This is also the episode when I realized what Gotten's thing is, because As I said previously, every one of the Xeon commanders has a thing, like a dominating personality quirk that is uh, both played for humor, but also sort of forms the crux of their motivations.
0: Is it that he's in love with his own cleverness?
1: Yes, it is his his scheme hatchery. Gotten is always hatching schemes.
0: And he's so proud of all of his schemes. He's so self-satisfied.
1: And his scheme is ultimately his own undoing here.
0: But also, it was a pretty good plan.
1: Yeah, it's not a bad plan. Basically, none of his schemes are bad plans. And that very neatly gets me to what I was going to point out about the difference between Double Zeta and Zeta. In Zeta, the characters are all doomed, and they're doomed by their inability to overcome their own inertia. In Double Zeta, we begin to see that the characters are also doomed, but what they're doomed by is the situation, the... uh, chaos around them, and it's the result of conflicting drives between different people. It's not that they're under their own momentum, careening towards disaster and refusing to change anything.
0: It's less about their own flaws and more about like this vast, complex situation that they... Can only just barely, if at all, change or affect.
1: Yes. So, like, think about Rekwa. Rekwa is a great example of everything that Zeta has to say about people. Because Rekwa, like, whether you subscribe to the theory that Sirocco psychically mind poisoned her or not, either way, you have to acknowledge that Rekwa is the architect of her own downfall, basically because she gets herself into a bad situation and then gives up on herself and refuses to ever take action to try to make it better or to escape it. And so she just like plows forward into her own eventual ignominious death. On the other hand, Gotten here is like always trying different things, always taking different approaches, coming up with clever schemes. But what ultimately proves his undoing is not him, like, overcomplicating his plans. It's that Cecilia has a moment where she tries to do a good thing.
0: Also, I mean, the suitcase opens by accident. She would not have opened it in that ship. If she hadn't happened to, you know, trip and knock the suitcase over, if it hadn't happened to open in that moment, we would have had an entirely different outcome. I'm really going to miss Goten's like rubber face and wacky poses. He is animated in <laughs> such a fun, funny way.
1: Yeah, he really is. And he has been almost since his introduction. The animation in this episode as a whole was absolutely top-notch.
0: Though the the humor in it feels incongruous to what a sad episode it is, right? Because we have a frankly, tragic storyline here. Uh, But when Kiara is piloting that mobile suit, the way it runs is funny. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm such a sucker for scenes of mobile suits running like that. The way it crawls through the the hatches and it can't quite fit.
0: And flails its legs around and kicks at the other mobile suit's fingers. (laughs) And yeah, all of that, that mobile suit animation is very funny.
1: That scene at the beginning where Kiara is like, Trying to seduce Bright and Rue sort of like, constantly interposing herself and the two of them fighting.
0: Yeah. Well, you had a great uh quick rundown on why that's funny, but her attempted seduction of judo was not, which I really appreciated.
1: Yeah, I did that was the thing I really wanted to talk about. Um, because the scene in which Kiara flirts with and like rubs her butt on Bright, um, works as humor
0: (laughs) like laughing thinking about it yeah
1: yeah and we've talked about other scenes that on paper are very similar um like the one where kiara is like trying to seduce judo and also rubbing herself on him but that was creepy and this isn't and i wanted to think and talk about why that is and i think it's ultimately about power Because in this situation, in this episode, Bright is the authority. Bright has all of the power. Bright is larger, he's stronger, he's the captain, he's not alone, he outnumbers Kiara, she's a prisoner. Like all of the circumstances are set up to make him more powerful in all of the ways that we conventionally accept as a society.
0: He's not blocked from getting away from her, he could leave the room.
1: But Kiara is able to invert that power relationship and make him embarrassed by finding this power that she possesses, even in that situation. And that's what's funny. Like it's not actually her rubbing her body against his body that is funny to us. It's Bright getting so embarrassed. It is the inversion of the power relationship that we would expect to exist in this situation.
0: Right, because I hope this goes without saying, but like unwelcome touching of any kind is not okay. Strictly speaking, as a, as a real situation, this would be totally unacceptable. But as a humorous cartoon situation, it's funny. Also, we can understand prisoners doing things that in a normal situation would be unacceptable, but that like within the situation where they are a prisoner doing everything they can to escape, they're gonna do things that normally we would consider.
1: Right. You know. Context and tone are very important. And this inversion or subversion of the normal power relationship uh, is not limited to this one scene. It's actually a major part of the episode. Um, One of the best places to see this is shortly afterwards, actually, when Chiara escapes and takes Cecilia hostage. She throws an arm around Cecilia's neck, but the threat she presents is that she is going to jab her fingers into Cecilia's eyes and blind her. But when we see her threaten this, we get a close-up on Cecilia's terrified face and Chiara's fingers. And we see Chiara's fingernails are long and pointed, very feminine, very dangerous in this specific situation. She is taking this aspect of, like, quote, weak femininity and turning it into a weapon. And that's Chiara in this episode all over. But it's also Cecilia, when she's using her vulnerability sort of, to manipulate Torres and try to get people to protect her.
0: I have a lot of trouble (laughs) with the Chiara escaping scene because they just leave her cell door open the whole time that they're talking to her and none of them are armed. And how many times has she tried to escape? How many times has she taken hostages so that she can escape? And they're just uh, like... This time, I'm sure it will be fine. Let's just leave the door open. No one has a gun.
1: They're not good at their jobs, Nina. They're not good at their jobs. I also love that as soon as she gets into the mobile suit, she finds a submachine gun. I I can understand why you would, like, have a sidearm in a mobile suit. Like, logically, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. But also, uh, the moment she gets the mobile suit, she also gets this, like, emblem of physical violent power, the gun. She no longer needs to rely on her sharpened fingernails. Also, When she gets the mobile suit and Eno, Mondo and Bicha are all like trying to do one pull up so that they can get onto the hatch of the Mark II and stop her. Are you telling me these boys cannot do one pull up in lunar gravity?
0: Oh, don't don't shame them. Also, (laughs) I I didn't think they were trying to get up there necessarily. I thought they were just trying to keep the hatch from closing. Mm. They were just hanging on to it so that she couldn't shut it. And then she kicks them off.
1: The argument needs a gym. <laughs> All of the different things we've seen on the argument, including that forest with Bench that Quattro had a good cry on and they don't have a gym.
0: I'm still not convinced that the forest wasn't some sort of mass hallucination.
1: <laughs> I love that bit when Chiara is escaping where she just sort of stops to take in the scene of Anaheim Electronics. It comes kind of out of nowhere, and it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the episode, but it shows one of Double Zeta's greatest strengths, which is its ability to interweave all of these different storylines that are all going in different places with different characters who have different but immediately recognizable and relatable goals, and to uh, make the story ultimately work with everybody in different places doing different things.
0: I'm wondering if that won't be relevant later, especially now that Kiara is in the wind, so to speak.
1: It would absolutely be very good storytelling if they did make that relevant later, but...
0: (laughs) You don't have a lot of faith in that?
1: (laughs) Remember how often we complained about how things in Zeta didn't seem to be properly set up or didn't have a proper payoff?
0: Yeah, well... And, th- and that would be one of the risks to the way these shows were written, right? Where you have several different teams working on different chunks of the story at the same time. Uh, it's not one writing team doing the whole thing. It's not necessarily even being written in sequence. And so it's not always going to connect in ways that make sense.
1: Speaking of the writing team, shout out to Suzuki Yumiko, who wrote these two episodes. They are very good. I also need to say something that I've wanted to say for a while, which is I really like Kiara's voice actor. The sort of like husky, breathy, occasionally fried voice is so unique in anime and it sounds so good and it works so well for the character. And there's a bit here, it's when she sees Gotten departing in the ship and she's like, "Gotten came for me in that hunk of junk. And she says, "Gotten meh, like that damn Gotten. But she manages to say it with so much like... Begrudging affection.
0: <laughs> it's a very expressive voice, you know, from being flirty to being sort of regretful to being all hyped up when she's fighting. Uh, she conveys a lot of emotion.
1: And this is basically her only role. She had a small role in Project Echo, and then she married a fellow actor and retired from the industry. Let's finish with a few visual notes. Now that they're all dead, I want to highlight the fact that the bridge crew of the Endra were all, like, fully realized and consistently drawn characters.
0: Humorously, in contrast to that, uh, I was a little distracted in the scene of uh, Torres and Cecilia saying goodbye to each other. Uh, that we get the a repeating track of the people boarding the plane behind her. It's just the same <laughs> animation that cycles over and over and over, <laughs> ship full of clones.
1: Speaking of that scene, when it first opens, they do a little shot of the hangar, and there are two, uh, looks like, hangar maintenance guys refueling one of the ships, and they are very clearly the characters Tetsuo and Kaneda from Akira. This is actually really interesting because the movie Akira had not come out yet. The manga had been out for years, uh, but the movie was in production when Double Zeta came out. What's even more interesting than that is that two of the animators who are credited for key art on this episode are also credited as animators on Akira. Furthermore, The pay for animators working on the movie Akira was notoriously low because of the way pay works in the industry. They would be paid per drawing, but the drawings for Akira had to be so detailed that they were so time consuming that no one could make any money animating for it. And so all of those animators had other jobs that they were working on the side including probably Double Zeta, which means there's a very good chance one of those two Akira animators, Naka Morifumi and Utsunomiya Satoru, also drew this scene. It's also a very well-drawn scene, despite the clones in the background, so uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. The animators working on Akira were the best in the industry at the time. What that also means is that this might be the first appearance of the characters Tetsuo and Kaneda in anime on screen. (laughs) I mentioned that I thought it was a really well animated episode. Uh, I think both in terms of the movement as well as beautiful individual stills and the scene composition too. So credit is in order for the whole team. And in particular, I'd like to highlight the storyboard artist Takizawa Toshifumi Who also did the storyboards for the opening of Double Zeta, and among other things, was fresh off of his role as the main series director for Dirty Pair. One final thing to mention, just for fun, there's a pose that's used a couple of times for characters right before they do some kind of quick action. They like get into this pose to get ready. Uh, Rue does it, Kiara does it, and a few others do it throughout this episode, and it's a really striking pose. So. Uh, At home, I want you to stand on your left leg, put your right leg in the air behind you, and then uh, take your right elbow and touch it to your left knee. Now, look up. (laughs) You're ready for action. (laughs) And if you want to see stills of that, follow me on Twitter. I'll post some there when the episode goes up.
0: And now the research on the experiences of Japanese emigrants.
1: From her first appearance in Crybaby Cecilia Part 1, Cecilia is driven by her dreams of escaping to a better life. The show paints a complex picture of her inner life, and we are offered various competing but not exactly conflicting ideas about Cecilia's motivations. What she thinks she's escaping from changes moment to moment. Not in a way that suggests inconsistent characterization. Rather, Cecilia's portrayal reflects an understanding of how it feels to be trapped in an impossible situation. When you're desperate, as she is, you may start to fixate on one particular change, one improvement on which you pin all of your hopes for salvation. If I could just get this other different job, if I just move to another city... When you're overwhelmed by the constant grinding stress of your daily life, and when you have no help, your resources, psychological and otherwise, are so depleted that you may not have the capacity to pursue more than that one single goal. Cecilia's one hope for a better life manifests at the beginning of part one as a new and better life in one of the colonies. To achieve this, she needs to accumulate enough money to buy tickets on an emigration ship for herself and her six dependents. Though she never says it, the show gives us enough reason to care about and understand Cecilia that we can easily imagine her keeping a secret stash where she puts whatever tiny fraction of her pizzeria waitressing paycheck she can spare. Every week, she slips a few coins into a hidden purse or a spare jar and she dreams about what life will be like in the colonies. She knows she needs to keep it a secret from the rest of her family. Maybe we can even imagine a heartbreaking scene when her father discovers the cash and steals it, drinking up all of Cecilia's precious savings. Throughout the two episodes, Cecilia's motivations crystallize further as the vague notion of tickets to another colony someday transforms into tickets on the Cassiopeia, today. The depiction of the Cassiopeia itself is remarkable. A lot of thought has gone into depicting what a ship full of emigrants would look like in the universal century. Details like the fastened seatbelts sign and announcement, combined with a steerage section that has clearly been retrofitted to cram in as many paying migrants as possible with nary a seat or seatbelt in sight, paints an evocative picture of this society and how it parallels our own. We've talked about migrations, Japanese migrants, and refugee crises before, but this week I want to look specifically at the experience of Japanese migrants during the relatively brief period of time during which huge numbers of people were emigrating from Japan to what we might call the colonies. There are, I think, good reasons to associate Japan with Grenada. Back in 1st Gundam, we saw a clear identification between Side 3 slash Zeon and the Empire of Japan, which was set in opposition against an Earth Federation that was mostly the Anglo-American alliance. Space was the vast and mostly empty Pacific Ocean. You could also suss out some hints of Nazi Germany there in the Zeon mix as well, but the stronger association was with Japan. Now, Granada is not territorially part of Side 3, but it is the lunar city furthest from Earth and closest to Side 3, both spatially and politically. It was occupied near the beginning of the One Year War, and it served as a major Zeon stronghold throughout. It was bypassed by the Federation during their island-hopping-style campaign in Operation Star 1, and so it ended up being the place that hosted the peace negotiations that ultimately ended that war. Which raises the question, who are the other colonies, the other sides, meant to be? And I propose the answer is that they are the colonized and formerly colonized nations throughout the Pacific, including the nations of South America. The Earth is the rich, established nations of the world, whether you call them the First World, the developed economies, or Global North. Xeon, like Japan, was an outsider to this world order that sought to achieve supremacy over it by doing imperialism harder and faster than the imperial powers that had preceded it. For most of the lives of everyone listening to this show, Japan has had a positive net migration rate, meaning that more people have immigrated to Japan than have emigrated from the country. Since 1950, which is as far back as I could find data, There have only been three periods when emigration exceeded immigration. That's from 1954 to 1963, from 1984 to 1992, and from 1995 to 1999. That's 21 out of the past 70 years. But if you look at the period before the Second World War, things are very different. Starting during the social upheavals of the Meiji period after 1868, And accelerating until just before the war, huge numbers of poor Japanese people left the country looking for better lives in the colonies. Though I do need to pause immediately, because framing it in that way suggests a degree of continuity in who was traveling where and for what reasons that is a little misleading. So I need to tease apart what I mean. Migration from Japan in the modern period falls roughly into two categories colonial migration and labor emigration. And I'll explain those more as I go along. Migration from Japan in the modern period essentially began in 1885. Prior to that, the Meiji government limited emigration for reasons of national prestige. First, because it lacked the international diplomatic heft that was necessary to ensure good treatment of its people abroad. And second, because it worried that populations of Japanese laborers would give other countries a bad impression of Japan. And this was during a period when the imperial government was doing everything in its power to impress the dominant Western nations. The hope was that if the international community was sufficiently impressed by the sophistication of the Japanese as a people, then they would agree to revise all the unfair treaties that had been forced upon the crumbling Bakufu government, during the 1850s and 1860s. Getting these unequal treaties revised was the driving motivation for Meiji international policy, basically for the entire history of that regime. By the 1880s, the Meiji government decided, or was forced, to change tactics, because their efforts to negotiate a multilateral revision of the treaties and normalize their relations with all of these imperial powers we're going nowhere, and the internal economic situation was turning desperate. Instead of trying to just be so darn likable that everyone treated them better out of affection, they opted for what we might call a muscular national policy that would make the nation so strong, both militarily and economically, that they could not be ignored. Or, in the words of an internet meme that I happen to love, they were no longer baby. Now they wanted power. <laughs> In 1894, Foreign Minister Mutsu Munemitsu successfully negotiated a new treaty with Great Britain, throwing off one of the unequal treaties for the first time. The next year, in 1895, Japanese soldiers crushed the Chinese Qing Empire's forces in the First Sino-Japanese War and seized Taiwan. Ten years later, Japan crushed the Russian Empire in the Russo-Japanese War and annexed the southern part of the Sakhalin Island. Five years later, in 1910, Japan formally annexed Korea, although they had exercised some degree of dominance over the Korean peninsula since 1876, when Japan imposed an unequal treaty on Korea, very much like the ones that had been imposed on it, and it was effectively in control of Korea from 1904 on. Huge numbers of Japanese people left the home islands to settle in these newly captured colonies, Most were people of at least moderate means already, or they were attached to well-capitalized colonization companies supported in every way by the government. This is what I meant when I referred to the colonial type of migration, and as is typical in imperial colonial societies, the Japanese settlers enjoyed political, social, legal, and economic priority over the native peoples. The story was largely the same everywhere, but to just use Korea as an example because it's particularly well documented, Korean landowners mostly became tenant farmers, displaced by Japanese farmers. In 1910, something like 8% of arable land in Korea was already owned by Japanese people or Japanese companies. By 1932, that share had increased to more than 52%. Partly this was because of new taxes that Korean landowners couldn't afford to pay. Partly it was because the Japanese administration enforced new laws. It required paper deeds that landowners with traditional rights to land just couldn't provide. While many of the Japanese subjects traveling to the colonies did so in search of a better life, they were largely guaranteed to find it. Yet at the same time, Part of the price of those international achievements in the 1890s and early 1900s was decades of domestic suffering as the Meiji government poured all of its energy and all of its revenue into big-scale industrial modernization and a ballooning imperial military budget, all of which was funded by an impoverished peasant tax base. Japan's national economy had been in a precarious state even before Commodore Perry arrived to force the nation open to Western trade. Wealth inequality, combined with natural disasters that further burdened the already impoverished lower classes, created a series of desperate crises in the mid-1800s that left the sclerotic and perpetually broke military government reeling. The Meiji government initiated sweeping reforms, designed to reform the nation and revive the economy, but in the short term, they created major disruptions. Abolishing feudalism meant turning roughly 2 million samurai into commoners. They were given lump sum payments in recompense for the loss of their privileges and their government stipends, but inflation and the bad economy meant that many of them became almost instantly impoverished. In the 1870s, the government carried out land reforms that gave farmers private ownership over land that had previously been communally owned. But ownership was already concentrated in a relatively small portion of the population. Among the farmers who were wealthy enough to own land, 40% of them owned one acre or less. And large numbers of farmers didn't own any land at all. They were tenant farmers, paying as much as half of their produce to their landlords. Then, in the mid-1880s, 10% of all farmers lost their land because they couldn't pay their taxes. Hundreds of thousands of farms went bankrupt, and millions were deprived of their livelihood. These displaced people responded with political agitation, violent uprisings, and increasingly by leaving the country to find work abroad, most particularly in South America. It is these desperate people spending their savings or taking out loans to afford the cost of passage in hopes of finding a better paying job in the land of opportunity that most remind me of Cecilia. Most of them were recruited by emigration companies these companies arranged for ocean passage and they promised the migrants jobs when they arrived the companies managed this by contracting with plantations in south america that were looking for laborers but while the companies operated with the approval and support of the government they still charged would-be migrants for passage the price could be as high as 160 yen per head at a time when that was more than a japanese police officer made in a year Those who found the money to make the journey did so with high hopes. Portrayals of the migrant labor lifestyle were rosy. The plantations offering the jobs and the emigration companies recruiting the laborers promised good conditions and comparatively high wages. And the government, reversing their earlier hesitancy, fully supported the emigration program as a way to expand Japanese influence abroad, and with the hope that emigrant communities would create long-term commercial footholds, opening up international markets for Japanese goods. Some of those who signed on for these plantation jobs were experienced farmers, but the combination of high expectations and the generally weak state of the Japanese economy meant that the emigrants actually came from a great variety of different jobs. By one contemporaneous account, As much as 85% of those who traveled to the Americas were policemen, prison guards, dropouts, small businessmen, fishermen, miners, railroad workers, school teachers, civil servants, lawyers, actors, gamblers, sailors, sex workers, and, significantly for our story, waitresses or barmaids. Many brought their families, though that did multiply the already substantial expense And some young people got married just so that they could go on the journey and start their new lives together. And hey there, Cecilia's plan for Torres. But of course, you know how this story goes. The conditions turned out to be abysmal. The wages were a fraction of what they had been promised. They were forced to buy necessary commodities from their employers at inflated prices. Sometimes the jobs for which they had been hired vanished while they were en route. The legal protections that had been negotiated between governments rarely applied on the ground, on the plantations. A typical labor contract might include a clause like the following real example. I pledge my person and my goods, those that I have now and those of which I may become possessed, renouncing domicile and all other privileges that the law affords, of my own free will. When workers protested or went on strike, the plantation owners called in soldiers to intimidate them. Having spent all their savings on the passage, they found themselves stranded upon arrival. Those who wanted to go back to Japan mostly couldn't afford to. Many fled their plantation jobs, often at pain of torture if caught, and tried to start new, new lives in the cities. They worked odd jobs, Cut hair, opened restaurants, found work in construction, some even fulfilled their nation's dreams by becoming importers of Japanese goods for resale. It's hard to know what fate awaits Cecilia's family now that she's gone, along with the suitcase full of Axis gold that turned out to be somewhat more explosive than promised. They'll arrive inside Six or wherever they're headed without her, and have to make their way in an unfamiliar world. It's possible that life in the colonies will be everything Cecilia dreamed, that her father and mother will find work and support the remaining three kids and grandmother. It's possible they won't. When I was researching this, I found myself thinking a lot about her younger siblings, who have just lost their sister and the pillar of their family at the same moment that they are leaving behind everything they know to travel somewhere far away, where everything will be strange. How old are they, even? Is there any hope for them? In 1927, Katagiri Toshio wept as his ship passed the last lighthouse on the Boso Peninsula. He was 13, the sixth of eight children from a struggling rural family, and had always dreamed of emigrating. But it was still emotional for him to leave Japan and realize he might never see it again. He landed in Mexico where his uncle had died of malaria and where his cousin now owned a small soda factory. For three years, he washed soda bottles 14 hours a day. Then he started working on a cotton plantation as a laborer. By the time he was 19, the boy with no prospects at all in Japan owned a small cotton farm of his own in Mexico.
0: It feels strange that so central a character as Gotten, one who has, at this point, outlasted two commanders, one who has, in how he's written and especially how he's animated, been a primary source of comedy in Double Zeta, should die with so little fanfare or attention. We laugh at his devotion and his betrayals. We laugh at his moments of emotion contrasted with his more mercenary tendencies. We laugh at the indignities he suffers. We laugh when his clever plots go wrong and his incompetent subordinates hamper his efforts. It is common enough to call a character Shakespearean, but I cannot help but think of Gotten when I read descriptions of Shakespeare's Sir John Falstaff, who appears mainly in Henry IV, Parts One and Two. And thank you to the MSB players for recommending I look into Sir John. Falstaff is described as dishonest and cowardly, boastful and narcissistic, Selfish, corrupt, thieving, manipulative, boastful, but at the same time intelligent and insightful. One source says of him that Falstaff is at the center of that comedy and is also essential to the more serious themes. In some respects, he performs the function of the chorus in Greek drama, commenting on the political action with sharp observation and underlying good sense. Falstaff is a man at once young and old, a dupe and a wit, harmless and wicked, weak in principle and resolute by constitution, cowardly in appearance and brave in reality, a knave without malice, a liar without deceit, and a knight, a gentleman, and a soldier without either dignity, decency, or honor. Falstaff himself has a lot to say about honor. To wit,
1: Can honor set to a leg? No. Or an arm? No. No. Or take away the grief of a wound? No. Honor hath no skill in surgery, then. No, what is honor? A word. What is in that word honor? What is that honor? Air, a trim reckoning. Who hath it? He that hath died a Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. But wilt not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it.
0: And it is Falstaff who says, the better part of valor is discretion. This practicality, this, let's call it, malleability, is visible in Goten as he tries to influence or manipulate his commanders, as he changes his own allegiance from Mashima to Chiara, Not one to attack head-on or pursue a fair fight when he could be pursuing an advantage. He doesn't seem to care about appearing chivalrous or honorable. Gotten wants to win. And if he cannot win today, he wants to survive so that he might win tomorrow. Another source adds, Falstaff remains endearing and likable because he plays his scoundrel's role with such gusto and that he never enjoys enough success to become a real villain. Could we laugh at Goten if his schemes succeeded? This would be a very different piece if his bombing had gone as planned. The crew of Goten's current ship, the Endra Corps, surviving members of the crew of the Endra that was mostly destroyed on Moon Moon, are much less complicated. Nell, Clayu, and the rest are all gormless devotion to Axis Zeon. Their one virtue, their devotion to each other. Were it not for the pathos of Cecilia's sacrifice, we might laugh at the hapless Nell, bringing Gotten's own bomb back to him. As Henry says of Falstaff in Henry IV Part I,
1: Were it not for laughing, I should pity him.
0: Cecilia feels a complicated figure. We scorn her and we pity her, Our knowledge of the fates awaiting many immigrants casts doubt on the benefit of some of her sacrifices. Does a better life really await her family? Was the spying, the danger it put her and others in, and the harm it caused, worth this uncertain future? Her actions play an essential role in Gotten's plot and put all souls aboard the Cassiopeia in terrible danger. Her actions also save them, and her thoughts as she goes to her death show a desire to make amends for her earlier selfishness, cowardice, and weakness. Our hearts ache for Cecilia because she exemplifies Gundam's greatest moments of tragedy. Ordinary people caught up in war and violence, and what happens when their struggle to survive confronts their values and ideals. What bends? What breaks? What changes? A poem from the Hyakunin Issue by Fujiwara no Koremasa seems to encapsulate what Cecilia must have felt when Torres drove away that final time. Aware tomo, iu beki hito wa de mi no itazura ni kana. I don't believe my friend will have compassion on me, but I won't die of love, will I? She is determined to move on, to see if a new life in a new place is safer, less burdensome, with more opportunity for herself and her family. Even with all our doubts, we cannot know. Her blind hope, her dreams of safety and freedom, are poignant to us, even as they seem childish or naive. This poem, by E.E. Cummings, made me think of her and of all the ordinary people in Gundam's universal century, those who went into space hoping for a better life. Who knows if the moon's a balloon, coming out of a keen city in the sky, filled with pretty people. And if you and I should get into it, if they should take me and take you into their balloon, why then, we'd go up higher with all the pretty people, than houses and steeples and clouds, go sailing away, and away sailing, into a keen city which nobody's ever visited, where always it's spring, and everyone's in love, and flowers pick themselves. Next time, on Episode 3.20, Earthbound, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 22 and… Shin! Treachery! Explanatory Diagrams! With friends like these… Won't someone please listen to the children! would just kill him very dead. Taihan! Brain poison. Judo kills a lot of people. And, think about what you've done. You will see the battlefield of new types. The Soup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at gundampodcast, on Facebook, at facebook.com slash gundampodcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting,
1: What is a gotten? A miserable pile of schemes
0: out your window at passersby we won't hear you but the world needs to know and thank you for listening
1: going back to the niharu comparison that could have been a really funny scene of bright meeting cecilia and being like hang on i've done this before is that she's going to jab her eyes into Cecilia. Her eyes. She's going to jab her eyes into Cecilia's fingers. No. These companies arranged for Osen, Osen, pe- Ocean. God, I think Shakespeare was like good at storytelling or something. <laughs> He's a pretty good writer, pretty good writer. I know. I know that's a hot take. I'm going out on a limb here. <laughs>
0: positive
1: when i can but uh that's what i love she found an opportunity to use the word gormless on the podcast it's an amazing word
0: this was quite the first week back at work for most of us wasn't it is that also about falstaff
1: no that's um dracula from castlevania
4: Uh, Ah, Samara, you—you making me look like a big Luke. Uh, We bring you all on the way from the boot, and you turn into a bigger madigan than a Jimmy. Ah, wow, what's going on in your gob? You a -a gabadost?
3: The name's Zabibi. I was a dead-end space squire on this spaceship uh, until—uh—I don't really know what happened. Don't know how I got here. Hey
4: Jimmy, get the zap! I mean uh, the map! Get it the map!